0: thank you for downloading this episode of case notes case notes was recorded at the royal college of physicians of edinburgh as part of the edinburgh history of medicine seminar series you can get news of our latest events if you follow us on twitter at rcp heritage we hope you enjoy the talk so i would first like to start off my talk with a disclaimer. Um, My speciality is in the 17th and 18th century um, Scottish medical history, so while I will try to discuss this topic in um, a British way, it will inevitably lean Scottish. I will also be discussing this topic in my capacity as a Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh volunteer by focusing at first on the examples of recipe books in the collections, and then discussing the ways in which overindulgence was viewed in the early modern period and, to, um, and what recipe books can tell us about how it was treated. So what were early modern 17th and 18th century manuscript recipes books like? During the early modern period people kept household books of recipes that included food, medicine, cosmetic recipes, as well as more general household tasks such as um, dyeing wool, so the dye itself would have been the recipe within the collections. These different genres of recipes were usually commingled with no clear delineation, which indicates that people did see these recipes, didn't see these recipes, as belonging to separate categories. Medicine was food, food was medicine, medicine was cosmetic. Because of the content, um, historians have understood these texts as domestic, um, specifically existing to help within the house um, and to help the household. It is perhaps not surprising, therefore, that many of these collections were written by women. We can also surmise that the women who collected these recipes would have had to be upper class because um, they would have had to be able to both read and write as well as have access to blank notebooks. In addition, these recipes were collected from various sources, um, such as social networks, newspapers, and printed texts. So I have two examples here of recipes that are attributed to other people besides the collector. So on the left-hand side, you see that she's, um, attributed these two recipes to her mother. Um, and then on the right-hand side, um, there are two different people that are attributed to the recipes. So the bottom one is to a lady floyer, and then the top one that you can see a wash for pimples in the face. That's, attributed to a Mrs. Howard who um, is listed as the maid of honor to King Williams Queen by attributing these recipe books they were they sort of served a dual purpose so they were saying um, exactly where they got these recipes but also providing some sort of authenticity to the recipe so um, in, ev- in, in, in excuse me in essence saying this recipe works because this person gave it to me so you can, um, you can be rest assured essentially that this is going to be an effective remedy. Sometimes these recipes are hastily scrawled, and in other cases they are carefully noted with ornate details in the margins. So you can sort of see from these attributions of the recipes to people that they're not itemized or anything, they look pretty um, slapdash. But then you get another example where the person has taken their time, has put Uh, ornate details in the margin, has written uh, very specific titles, so it's written in a different font. Uh, So there's a very definite careful planning um, in regards to this one that you don't really see in the other one. The other interesting thing about this example is that it shows that um, sometimes recipe books didn't have one contributor. So in this example, all the way to the left, you can see that this has two very separate handwritings. So this the top one is attributed to the collector. And then the bottom one is secretary hand, uh, which is a specific type of font that people, um, or way of writing that people would use during this period. Um, And it was most likely a man that wrote this because um, I've never seen an instance of a woman uh, using secretary hand. I also really like the um, example all the way to the right. There's a cherub and a cupid, and you kind of see this um, Fairly often, different ways that people tried to personalize their recipe collections, um, and for me, this really does help to bring to the fore the personality of the person of the collector. So, uh, the Royal College has two manuscript books. We've sort of already seen um, some bits of them before um, in its collections. Uh, one is attributed to Jane Taylor, and one to Mary Sayer. So, you can see um, Mary Sayer's. Um, inscriptions, as Mary say, are December the 12th, 1717. So we can assume that she started this collection in seventeen in December 12th, 1717. Uh, Jane Taylor has just simply written Jane Taylor her book uh, with ornate details, because she seems to be the ornate person. Manuscript recipe books were often anonymous. Um, so these examples in the collections are special because we can point to the, to the collector of the recipes, although um, it has yet to be determined who these women were. Um, because while they provided their names, they have not indicated any biographical data. So, um, for example, where they lived, who they were married to, et cetera, or who their father was, even. Um, And it is difficult to determine in which part of the British Isles they were written. Um, In my own research on Scottish recipe books, I have tried to determine Scottishness based on the language used and the measurements used in the recipe books. So the first indicator that a text is Scottish is, does it use any Scots words? Scots being the language people are most familiar with with the the Robert Burns' poems. So for example, um, does the recipe book or the recipe writer use braid instead of powdered? If not, um, if there are no Scots Words. then the next determination is through old Scottish measurements. Um, So part of the Parliamentary Union of 1707 meant that Scotland and England were supposed to use the same measures, but some Scottish people continued to use Scottish measurements. Um, One such example is the choppin, uh, which is equivalent to an English court in this period. Um, And these sort of measurements were used up until the 19th century, so quite a while. Unfortunately, Mary and Jane's texts do not meet either of these criteria, so it is not at the moment possible to determine that these texts are Scottish. As stated before, manuscript recipe collections um, would sometimes obtain recipes from printed medicinal recipe texts. The Royal College has several examples of printed recipe books, but I think my favorite is uh, John Moncrief's Poor Man's Physician, um, which you can see the title page on the right-hand side there. Originally printed in 1712 as Tip or Malik's receipts, Moncrief's text represents a slew of medical texts um, meant to be used by those who are not in the medical pr- um, profession. So the poor man. Um, the text and Moncrief himself are shrouded in mystery. Um, not much is known about him or how he obtained these recipes. But for several years, this text was one of the most popular books of its kind in Scotland. and. Um, which is why I think it's really interesting. But also um, we will be revisiting Moncrief's text a bit later on in this talk. Another such printed book was Taylor's Ready Doctor written by Peter Taylor and printed in Scotland in the last quarter of the 18th century. Um, you can see the title page here um, on the left-hand side. I mentioned this text because it is evidence that printed medical recipe books persisted into the end of the early modern period and thus contemporaries did not see them as oddities as we perhaps do, but rather useful texts, um, even as we get into the quote unquote more modern age of the Enlightenment. So that's a little bit about recipe books as a source. Now let's move on to overeating and drunkenness in the early modern period and what these recipe books tell us um, and what recipe books more generally tell us. So, Digestive issues were a common complaint in the early modern period, and perhaps this is unsurprising as about three quarters of the Scottish diet consisted of, uh, consisted of oats. Historian Anne Staubert argues that the evidence of digestive ailments in recipe books likely reflects the close link between food and health. And we can see this close connection in the medical theory of the time. For the 17th and into the 18th century, The medical theory was largely based on the teachings of Galen, which espoused the human body was composed of four humors, phlegm, blood, black bile, and yellow bile. Each person had a unique balance of these humors, and any sort of imbalance resulted in illness. So medications were based on rebalancing the humors, and one of the easiest ways of doing so was through purging which is why you find many recipes um, for enemas and vomiters in these recipe collections. In Galenic medicine, diet and exercise were important aspects to maintaining health, to maintain the balance of the humors. Um, And the need for a moderate diet was um, as far reaching as to become a proverb, um, eat in measure and defy the mediciner. Um, To some extent, overeating in in the early modern period has been overlooked by historians. Perhaps they have taken for granted that it was a simple issue of class. So only those who could afford to eat more and who did not have to exercise for work were the ones that could could eat more calories than they expended. Michael Stolberg um, has tempered this idea by noting that cases of obesity occurred at all levels of society, so not just the upper classes. However, it is probably safe to say that there was more possibility for overeating in the upper classes. Um, From the 17th century and increasingly after 1650, medical works devoted to the physiology and pathology of excessive fat and to causes and treatments of corpulence were printed. Um, These works written for uh, physicians. Would have been used for their clients who at this period would have had to have been upper class um, people because they would have been the ones that were able to afford the high physicians fees. Finally, the morality of overeating was ever in question during the early modern period. In a deeply religious Europe, gluttony was one of the worst of the deadly sins to commit. This piety was Also met with a number of famines, uh, making it increasingly difficult for people to justify eating more than their share. Scotland in particular was hit with a number of famines in the 17th century and a rather intense one in the 1690s. Therefore, any amount of excess fat was an outward sign of your devotional deficiencies. So while it was a marker of class, overeating also did carry this burden of morality. Now, in the context of early modern medicine, alcohol is a a tricky topic. Um, For one, alcohol is a key component to many medicinal recipes. Uh, From my own research, I surveyed three recipe books, uh, noting their overt medical recipes and the ingredients therein. And in these three books, there were some 2,000 ingredients. And of of these 2,000 ingredients, there were 163 instances of some form of alcohol so wine, ale, etc. In addition, in a book about Orkney written in 1931 concerning the traditional healing methods, J.T. Leesk wrote, quote, one old man known to the writer in his childhood never tasted medicine of any kind whatsoever till he was 84 years of age except whiskey, brandy, rum, or gin. This is not to imply that drunkenness was not an issue in the early modern period. Um, The Protestant church would punish Sabbath breakers who were drinking during the time of sermon through the church's own forms of courts um, that would try moral crimes. So for example, on the 24th of August, 1658, Patrick Tate Gardner to Lady Angus was brought before uh, the ecclesiastical court in Canongate because he had people drinking in his house the last Lord's Day in time of sermon, which he could not deny. He was subsequently given a warning um, that if this should happen again, or if he be found drunk himself, then he would have to give public repentance. Perhaps because of its fairly common occurrence, the recipe books do not have many recipes that specifically address drunkenness. Um, But the famous proverb, hair of the dog, was in usage during this time, and in the 18th century, John Kelly collected what he believed to be Scottish proverbs, which he then tailored to an English audience. He wrote of a similar proverb, seek yourself when you get your sore, or where you get your sore, excuse me, which he explained was, quote, spoken to them who are sick after drink, alias, take the hair of the dog that bit you. So what can recipe books tell us about the treatment of overindulgence? The early modern term for overconsumption was surfeit. It was sort of used as a blanket. Surfeit was a blanket term for um, overeating and um, overindulging in alcohol. Um, And if you'll allow me one more proverb, it was believed that surfeits slay slay more than swords. Many recipe books contain um, at least one recipe for surfeit water, which would have been drunk to alleviate the symptoms of overindulgence. In his recipe book begun in 1709, Archibald Campbell devoted two large pages to surfeit waters, to various surfeit waters, one of which he obtained from a Mrs. Mallet, um, which you can see right here on the screen. It combined poppy leaves with strong ale, which may have helped alleviate any feeling, let alone pains from eating and drinking too much. Um, similarly, in an anonymous 17th century recipe book, the writer included poppy flowers, a different strong alcohol, in this case, aqua vitae, which in Scotland, at least, was usually whiskey, um, as well as anise seed, caraway seeds, and coriander. These last three ingredients would have served to both heighten the medicinal benefits and improve the taste. In his Poor Man's Physician, John Moncrief has several methods for curing surfeit that are all comparably easier than those recipes just discussed. This is perhaps because um, it is intended for a more popular, so non-professional, audience. I have it here, um, what he says for drunkenness and surfeit. Coal were a type of cabbage, um, and here Moncrief may be referring to the broth made from the plant as it's supposed to be supped. Um, And wormwood was often used as a digestive aid, um, even across Great Britain. The next instruction is to modern sensibilities, perhaps rather odd. Um, A vinegar-soaked cloth is to be placed around the nether regions. Um, It is uh, probably related to Galenic theory because vinegar was an astringent um, and, or is an astringent, and it thus encourages the movement of fluids throughout the body. So this would have made sense to somebody who was reading this text. Um, And the final instruction is the only one that specifies that it is for drinking. Um, Truthfully, I do not understand why it is specifically almonds that are called for, but certainly eating before drinking is beneficial. Um, Although I should say it probably should be more than six almonds. And then the other printed text mentioned, um, Taylor's Ready Doctor is interesting in that it provides a preventative measure for overconsumption. Preventative medicine in general was underdeveloped during the 17th and 18th centuries beyond tempering uh, one's diet as discussed previously. Taylor included a recipe for a greedy appetite, um, which suggests that the patient eats a pottage or porridge made from wheat and whale oil once a day for three days or, alternatively, to rub gum Arabic on their stomach. Um, someone has annotated the text with the couplet, for people that do largely eat, potatoes is the only meat, which I think is quite sweet. Um, it appears that Taylor and the annotator suggested filling up on other dense food in order to stop oneself from overconsuming too much later on, or from consuming too much later on. Like Moncrief, um, Taylor has several methods to combat the symptoms of overconsumption. Um, One of his methods is particularly harsh on the body, but uh, was probably in its own way beneficial. So you can see on the right-hand side his um, entire remedies for drunkenness. But I just wanna draw attention to this one part. Quote, and if the patient has drunk too much, let him drink about a mutchkin, which is another old Scottish uh, measurement which is, um, in this case, he's saying an English pint of said juice, it will instantly cause him to throw up and he will soon be whole. Otherwise, to make use of a good quantity of butter or fat meat before drinking, um, which he says preserves one wonderfully. Um, So again, it probably was beneficial in its own way. To conclude, um, for the most part, history has understood the problems of overindulgence in food and alcohol as becoming a palpable hindrance to daily life during the Industrial Revolution, when people are expected to appear at a workhouse or factory at um, a specific time each day. And the first fad diet wasn't created until the 19th century from a pamphlet written by William Banting, which the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh has in its collections. But clearly through looking at the early modern recipe books, overindulgence was an issue even prior to this period. However, in my humble opinion, the holiday season is a period to enjoy oneself, um, especially this year. And in this spirit, I thought I'd leave you with a suitably holiday winter-esque recipe in Jane Taylor's collection, um, which is her recipe for gingerbread. And I think this is actually uh, particularly interesting because each of these elements of the gingerbread could have very easily been um, transliterated, transmuted to uh, medicinal recipes. So treacle um, or sugar would have been used in medicinal recipes um, because it helps the medicine go down. Um, A quarter pound of the butter. So butter was used often in uh, medical recipes um, to help the consistency of salves. Uh, Ginger and cloves were used very often, along with cinnamon, um, in medicinal recipes, both for their medicinal qualities, but also because they just tasted nice. Um, And here, brandy is used, and as we discussed, alcohol was used quite often. Um, Brandy, not really so much, um, at least in the recipe books that I've looked at. Uh, More often, you would see claret or other types of wine being used, Um, but certainly brandy was used later into the 18th and 19th century. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.